are worthy to be praised. We come today, God, to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our church family. Now, God, speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening to hear a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2 again, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Unity in the church. That's what Paul is talking about, unity in the church. He, he wrote this letter from his incarceration in prison. Obviously, he has the church on his mind. Obviously, he wants the church to remain unified as a unified uh, body, and so he writes this letter. The world in which Paul lived and the world in which the church at Caesarea Philippi was birthed was a very hostile world. Christianity was new on the scene. They had, they had formidable foes. For example, the Roman government was not a friend to the church. In fact, there were no tax-exempt statuses. There were no laws protecting uh, the rights of churchgoers. There were no, no laws uh, uh, preventing harassment and cruelty. In fact, by this time, James, the brother of Jesus, had already been beheaded. John had already been banished to the island of Pat Patmos. Christians were persecuted on every front. Not only did the Roman government have no place in their, in their statutes for, for Christianity at the church, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees hated the church as well. In fact, they had recently participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. What Paul understood was that the world was not a friend for or to the church. The church had skeptics. The church had critics. The church had haters. And so Paul vehemently wrote to the church that they needed to be unified because they had a formidable foe. He wanted them to understand that the enemy was not the church. The enemy was the world and his system against the church. And so in these four verses, Paul set forth some practical helps that would help the church become and remain unified. Now, we won't cover them all today, but I want to just give you four. The first practical help involves church members having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul said that's the first thing. Everything is centered 
around Christ. If there's going to be unity in the church, church people must be saved. They must know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They must trust him. They must love him. They must make up in their minds that they are going to live for Jesus. Notice verse 1. Paul wrote, is there, if there be any consolation in Christ. The word consolation means encouragement. It means comfort. It means solace. It means exaltation and strengthening. Note that consolation or encouragement was a characteristic of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he encouraged people. He encouraged his disciples. He encouraged the poor in spirit. He encouraged the hurting. He encouraged those who were lonely and sick and downtrodden. He encouraged the rejected and the disenfranchised not to give up, not to give out, not to give in. He encouraged lost sinners to come to him for their salvation. They could not go to Rome for their salvation. They could not go to the Pharisees and the scribes for their salvation. Jesus said, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, wrote, said these words, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. He said, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls you will not find rest in the world you will not find rest in human means you will only find rest for your souls in Jesus he said for my yoke is easy and my burdens light how's that for encouragement Jesus was a great encourager. Paul points out in verse 1 that not only was Jesus an encourager, those who had been genuinely born again, those who constituted the church are also to encourage one another. And where there are examples of Christ-like encouragement in the church, Paul notes there will be unity. In the church. Likewise, a church where the spirit of encouragement does not flow freely from the membership, there will be frustration, there will be fragmentation, and there will be fractured relationships. Paul says, console one another. That's what Jesus did. Paul says, comfort one another. That's what Jesus did. Paul said, encourage one another. Strengthen one another. Be there for one another. Be there in good times and be there in bad times and be there in happy times and be there in sad times and be there during times of joys and be there during times of sorrow. That's what Jesus did. Paul says that builds unity in the church when we are there for one another. The second practical help involves the love of Jesus. Verse 1 continues, if any comfort 
of love. Paul shared with the Philippians that in order to effectively carry out the ministry of the gospel, there must remain unity in the church. But such unity would occur only as church members comforted each other with the love and the comfort of Jesus Christ. It is the love of Jesus deep within a person's soul that stirs him or her to keep unity with other believers. That's what it is. That, that it's the love of Jesus Christ deep in the soul of people, of church members, that spurs them on to keep unity with other believers. The word used for love in the text, in verse 1, is the word agape. Agape is a selfish and sacrificial love. Agape love is a love of the will, and it travels far deeper than feelings and emotions. Let me say that again. Agape love is a love of the will, and it travels far deeper than feelings and emotions. Feelings change. Agape remains the same. Emotions fluctuate. They seesaw. They go up and down, but not agape love. Agape love remains the same. Agape love compels us as believers, as a church family, to love a person even though he or she does not deserve our love. Paul said if you're going to have unity in the church, You've got to have agape. Agape compels us to love a person or to love people who are utterly unworthy of us loving them. Agape love refutes the faulty reasoning which says I cannot or will not love them because of who they are or what they've done. Agape love refutes that kind of reasoning. Agape love is none other than the love Jesus demonstrated on Calvary's cross. Agape love is magnified, is verified, is solidified, is glorified through the words of Paul in Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you get that? While we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were still messed up, Christ died. While we were still rebelling against God, Christ died for us. That's agape love. That's unifying love. That's the kind of love that brought us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now get this. He sacrificed himself for us. He died for us. He shed his 
blood for us who did not deserve it. And all of us were absolutely unworthy of his love. I was unworthy and you were unworthy. All of us are unworthy of his love. Like the songwriter wrote, he didn't have to do it. But he did. Think about the unity. Think about the togetherness that would flow through the church if agape love flowed through every church member. Here's another attribute of agape love is that there's no separation in it. There's no fragmentation in it. There's no alienation in agape love. Paul substantiates this truth in Romans 8, 37 through 39. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul wrote, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor nor a created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what things do we allow to separate us? There is no separation in agape. Agape is powerful. Agape is passionate. Agape is packed with the presence of the preeminent Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and nothing can separate us from his love. Aren't you glad about it? Nothing can separate us from his love. No action, no attitude, nothing can separate us from his love. And so it is when agape love flows in the church, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate church members when agape love flows through the church. Nothing can separate us. No bitterness can separate us. When agape flood flows in the church, no anger can separate us. No actions can separate us. No strife can separate us. Nothing from the past, nothing from the present, nothing in the future can separate those who have been engulfed by the flame of agape love. The church is standing together united. You know that there's agape love. When the church goes through trials and temptations and when the church faces issues and the members are still together, you know it's agape love. Puppy love will pass. How many of you know puppy love will pass? Many of you, us, have puppy love kind of relationships, but those relationships are no longer around. Brotherly love will, will cease, and erotic love will run its course, but agape love stands strong. A church whose members have the genuine blood Agape blood of Jesus flowing through their spiritual veins will remain united in spite of race, in spite of economics, in spite of the social and political climate. 
because no schism designed by the evil one can promote and push us into separation. That's when agape love is there. Now, if it's puppy love, politics will divide us. If it's puppy love in the church, race will divide us. If it's puppy love in the church, economics will divide us. If there's puppy love, any little dissension will divide us. But agape love will hold us together. The fourth practical help is compassion. Paul concludes verse 1 with these words. If any affection and mercy. What he's writing about here is compassion. Affection and mercy equals compassion. The Roman world in which Paul lived was a lot like the world in which we live today. It was a world characterized by the abuse of power. Everywhere you look, powerful people abuse power and oppress people. It was a word, a world characterized by the abuse of, of power. It was characterized by political and social and economic and gender and racial hatred and oppression. That was the world in which Paul lived, very much like the world in which we live. But it was into this hateful, this hostile, and this hideous world that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was into this world that Jesus came preaching and teaching the word of God, the will of God, and the ways of God. It was into this world, this corrupt world, this disturbed world, this mean and hateful world that Jesus came and he modeled compassion. Trace the steps, if you will, from Bethlehem's manger to Calvary's cross. And you will find compassion every step of the way. Jesus modeled compassion. As a church family, we are to model compassion every step of the way. And our compassion should not be moved or altered by the ways of the world. From Bethlehem's manger to Calvary's cross, Jesus modeled compassion every step of the way. Notice these scriptural texts. But when he saw the multitudes, the multitudes were mixed up. The multitude was messed up. The multitude was confused but when he saw the multitudes when he saw the sinners when he saw the haters when he saw those who had a proclivity towards him even the bible says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Matthew 9, 36. When he went ashore, 
he saw a large crowd, a large crowd perhaps of hurting people, a large crowd of lonely people, a large crowd of broken-hearted people, a large crowd of people who had broken dreams and broken lives. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd of sick people, no doubt mentally as well as physically sick people. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt, get this, compassion, not disdain, not hatred, but compassion for them and healed their sick. Sick, by the way, has more to do with physical ailments. He healed those who were sick in spirit and needed to be saved. So said Matthew 14 and 14. I have compassion on the multitudes, Jesus said, because they have now contended with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry, if I turn them away, if I send them away hungry to their own houses to fend for themselves, Jesus says they will faint on the way. For some of them have come so far, so says Mark 8, 28, 2, and 3. John 11, 32 through 35. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her, get this, weeping, when he saw the tears in Mary's eyes when he saw that her heart had been broken, when he saw her grief and her pain and her lamenting over the death of her brother Lazarus. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. The Bible says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. How's that for compassion? How much weeping are we doing? over the condition of hurting people? How much weeping are we doing over those whose lives are in shambles? How much weeping are we doing? Then, to round it off, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. So says Luke 23, 32. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. 
33. Then Jesus said, try this on for compassion. Verse 34, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's compassion personified. That's compassion incarnate. That's compassion in the flesh. That's the compassion Jesus desires in his church. That's the compassion that Paul wrote to the Philippians about. If you're going to have unity, you must have the compassion of Jesus Christ. Because it's easy to blame. It's easy to point the finger. It's easy to ridicule. It's easy to complain. But it's more Christ-like to have compassion. And compassion breeds unity. Oh, good hope, my brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever you may be, may our hearts be stirred with the compassion of Jesus. This is Thanksgiving season. We're moving into the season of, of Christmas. May our heart be stirred with the compassion of Jesus, not only this week and next week, but not only tomorrow, but every day as a church. May our hearts be stirred with the compassion of Jesus. Compassion builds unity. May his compassion flow in us and through us and may it keep building unity within our church. May we sing joyfully and truthfully the words of the hymn writer who penned, we are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord and they will know who will know. The world will know who will know. Those who are still lost will know. Who will know? Those who come to our church broken and battered and bruised and beaten will know. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love.